The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. He died, not to abolish, but to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by J. Gresham Machen, and it's called The Fear of God. It was preached in the 1920s. Joel, this sermon we are listening to is about fearing God and I think it's really easy to say, like when I'm at church or I'm talking to people, yeah, fear God more than man. I think that's so easy to say. And maybe even some of us think like, well, if God put me in a life or death situation, I would totally say God for you and I would go put my life down. But when like something like our reputation or our salary or what people think about us is on the line, I feel like, at least for me, I suddenly want to be like, well, you know, I fear man a little bit, if I'm honest. You know, I do want to soften my beliefs and not, well, I, of course, I believe the Bible, but he, let me, you know, to explain to you why, I kind of, I kind of feel this urge not to be judged by them. And Jay Gresham Machen in this sermon and in his life is just like, no, that's not okay. Like, it doesn't, we fear God more than men. We're not going to let them and their thoughts really affect us in the way we're going to stand for God no matter what. Now, we don't normally do this, but with this episode, I would recommend, it's kind of a building episode. Uh, there was an earlier episode we had done on J. Gresham Machen, and I highly recommend you go back and listen to it if you haven't yet. Um, we know that we have some new listeners who have been coming in over the past uh, couple weeks, couple months, as you guys tell people more about Revive Thoughts and what we're doing, which we're very grateful for. We get new listeners, and a lot of you jump in on the most recent episodes and you stick around, and we love that. But we've done over 30 sermons at this point. If you haven't gone back and listened to some of those, you're missing out. And this one, this sermon, the history on this one really builds on the history of the other one and actually builds on an even earlier episode by B.B. Warfield. They're all from the same place, same time, and each one kind of moves the flag a little bit further. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. You can still listen in. I think you'll still be able to understand it, but I think you would get a greater appreciation if you went back and checked out those earlier episodes. Troy, when you hear about Majin and, and a lot of the, the people from this era, you hear a lot about their fights with theological liberalism and that's kind of this idea that the bible is not necessarily the word of god it's it it doesn't have that authority to it and that it can be taken a little bit less more strict and seriously than it is and i know that's an oversimplification please don't write in but that's kind of the essence of what that theological liberalism debate um was during that era and a lot of this stuff becomes uh, the essence of a lot of theological debates and the question is this, even though you may disagree with someone who views things this way, is it really worth the fight? Is it worth breaking fellowship over a topic like this? And Machen believed so. He he ended up forming a completely different denomination of the Presbyterian movement because he took the Bible literally. And there are still people today that kind of have this, this kind of same debate, maybe not so much more about theological liberalism, but about this concept of division. There are people that look at the modern day church and say, the church is too divided. We need to stop dividing and be more unified in that. Um, and then there's this opposing side. Again, that, that Machen would say, 
Division is a good thing as long as you are dividing for the right reasons, for the biblical reasons. Uh, the 1920s was a time in the world where everything was in change. Uh, I feel like we always talk, oh, this is a time where everything's changing, but this is right after World War One that had just completely shattered expectations of what people's lives were going to be like, and traditions were being torn down, and people were rethinking how to live, and where does Christianity fit into this world? In 1921, B.B. Uh, Warfield dies. Uh, Princeton Theological Seminary starts to change, and Princeton really decides we're going to liberalize like the other seminaries around the United States had. But Princeton Theological Seminary is the center of Presbyterian thought, this Reformation idea. So when it gave way to liberalism, this was a sign to to the conservative side of the Presbyterians that there's nowhere else really to go. And so they were left feeling really left out. But again, this is all in the books, right? This is all theology. How does this play out in people's lives? Right. So for Machen, the, the problem starts in 1932, and he is reviewing the mission-sending practices of the Presbyterian Church in America. And there was a report released called Rethinking Missions. This report uh, basically said that the old way of doing missions was preaching the gospel to those who had not had a chance to hear the gospel, and this would help nations who did not know God come to know Christ and hear the good news that's found in the Bible. That's 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 how they were approaching missions. That's how many of us still do. But this new proposal was uh, essentially saying we should accept the religions of others, tolerate them, and seek to improve their social conditions as good Christians, but not necessarily worry about their spiritual state. So be helpful, serve them in, in ways that are Christ-like. But again, the focus was no longer on sharing the gospel. And here you can see the problem. The theological liberalism had that had taken effect into the way they were thinking was now playing out in the way they were doing their actual life. And it was actually spreading into the way they were doing missions, the very place you're supposed to spread the gospel itself. And there were people in the group who said, you know, we, look, we shouldn't argue. We shouldn't fight this new way of doing missions. You know, I might not agree with it, but the best way we can change things is to kind of stay as they are and maybe try to do our best here. We don't want to get in the way of helping and uh, missions, right? And that this would hurt the witness of the church. I said, look, the church is going to be seen as infighting. It's going to be really gross. We don't want that to be the way people view church. So let's not do anything. Machen doesn't see it that way. He he goes straight to the board and, sa- and sends them a. Uh, he looks at some and he he looks at the quotes from Rethinking Missions. One of them says the old way of Christians seeking to promote redemption was superstitious. So the idea that we need to be redeemed by a creator that's superstitious. It's old school, right? Another one um, and there was another quote in there is basically like we're our goal is to help people and that's what we're here for is only to help people and that we need to respect these other religions as they are. He sends this his his own quote basically refutation. Um, I, I think the board is wrong. And then he sends them another notice saying, look, this is where the board is wrong. And he's expecting the, this, the board of the Presbyterian Church will have a debate with him. A year goes by, and they don't do anything. No debate occurs. They reject his ideas, and they just they don't want to talk to him. They're not going to talk about this. This is the way they're doing things now. Now, Machen could have called it there. He could have been done there. He could have said, hey, I've written my disagreement. Uh, I've, I've done my duty, and now I'm going to pray and, and hope for the best. But... He didn't. He didn't stop there. Him and 24 other ministers, which is a relatively small group when you consider the size of the Presbyterian movement, they decided to start a separate missions organization called the Independent Board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions. And while this wasn't illegal for the Presbyterians to donate to a different missions organizations, the Presbyterian Church 
eventually saw what was going on here. In 1934, they found what this board was doing. They saw that by that time they had already sent a missionary to China, and they kind of viewed this as a direct attack on the Presbyterian Church. So now you have almost this little Presbyterian civil war between this Presbyterian missions outreach and this new missions organization that Machen had started with his fellow ministers. They reprimanded the group and told them that they had to resign. Of course, they did not. And this kind of led to a, a standoff. So it all goes down in 1935. Machen is brought before an ecclesiastical court. And we deal with church courts and stuff like that a lot on Revive Thoughts, but normally that happens in like the 1500s or 1600s when there were church courts. This one's really weird because it happens in the 1900s, and this kind of surprises the entire world. Um, he gets to this court in New Jersey, and there are newspaper reporters. They're all waiting and taking pictures. Like, they're super excited. This is, this is something that doesn't happen every day. And uh, the thing that was really weird, though, and people didn't understand, is that to them, to the secular world, this argument made no sense to them. They were just like, okay, these people are arguing about how to do missions and as a court. This is, to them, it seemed ridiculous. But so, and they were using it to attack the church. Look, it's the Great Depression, and these Presbyterians are just over here about fighting about how to give out food. It was this big thing that people were making fun of Machen for, and they were attacking him and saying, like, look, you guys are making a big to-do about nothing. However, he stood against the court, and he, him and his group basically said, you know, you're going to have to suspend us from ministry because we're not going to stop sending missionaries that actually preach the gospel when they go. And the court says, fine, you're suspended from ministry. Like, you're no longer allowed to preach and do anything under the Presbyterian name. We're not going to have any part with what you're doing. And I think it's important to stop and get perspective here. Machen was suspended from ministry for starting a mission board to send missionaries that were preaching the gospel because the old missionary board had stopped doing this and was sending them over to do basically social work. This shows you how far the change in thinking had gone. You know, we talked about theological liberalism in the beginning, how this way of thinking changed how their actions were. Now they not only were not sending, they were not standing for the truth anymore when someone started preaching a different gospel, they were now actually actively fighting people like Machen who were trying to stand for the truth. They've completely switched sides. And that's what happens when your thinking becomes corrupted. You go from, I'm going to stand for the truth to I'm not going to fight for the truth if it's going to hurt someone's feelings to I'm actually going to fight against people who are fighting for the truth because I don't like what they're saying. It's going to hurt feelings, it's going to embarrass. Look at how the church is being made fun of. And yeah, in that moment, it wasn't a pretty moment for the church, but it was also not a pretty moment for the church because they were calling someone to ecclesiastical court. Like it wasn't just Machen, it was the whole way they went about it. And I love Machen's approach to the church, the way of thinking about the church. That the church shouldn't just preach what is right, but this idea that it had to correct when it was wrong. And that's something that's so hard, even for modern-day churches, to to wrap their head around, is that it, the church is run by people, and people sometimes get things wrong, and the, we need to recognize when that happens and correct. Machen and several others withdrew from the Presbyterian Church of America and started what would eventually become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, although Machen would die in 1937 before it was truly named. This specific portion of his life and Machen's life is, is so big. You can look at so many different aspects of it. We spent this episode primarily looking at this fight with changes in the church and 
the idea that how we think really does change how we act. It might not be right away, but it does play into what eventually comes out of how we conduct ourselves. In this sermon that we're about to listen to, Manchin reminds us that we will be judged someday by God, and we have to be aware of that. We need to be fearing God and not the actions of men. Machen didn't fear men, and he was willing to do whatever it took to stand for the faith. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. These words were not spoken by Jonathan Edwards. They were not spoken by Cotton Mather. They were not spoken by Calvin or Augustine or by Paul. But these words were spoken by Jesus. And when put together with the many other words like them in the Gospels, they demonstrate the utter falsity of the picture of Jesus, which is being constructed in recent years. The other day, in one of the most popular religious books of the day, The Reconstruction of Religion by Elwood, I came upon the amazing assertion that Jesus concerned himself but little with the thought of a life after death. In the presence of such assertions, any student of history may well stand aghast. It may be that we do not make much of the doctrine of a future life, But the question whether Jesus did so is not a matter of taste, but an historical question, which can be answered only on the basis of an examination of the sources of historical information, which we call the Gospels. And if you want to answer the question, I recommend that you do what I have done and simply go through a Gospel, noting the passages where Jesus speaks of blessedness and woe in the future life. You may be surprised at the result. Certainly you will be surprised if you have been affected in the slightest degree by the misrepresentation of Jesus which suffuses the religious literature of our time. You will discover that the thought not only of heaven but also the thought of hell runs all through the teaching of Jesus. It appears in all four Gospels. It appears in the sources supposed to underlie the Gospels which have been reconstructed rightly or wrongly, by modern criticism. It is not an element which can be removed by any critical process, but simply suffuses the whole of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life. It runs through the most characteristic parables of Jesus, the solemn parables of the rich man and Lazarus, the unrighteous steward, the pounds, the talents, the wheat and the tares, the evil servant, the marriage of the king's son, the ten virgins... It is equally prominent in the rest of Jesus' teaching. The judgment scene of the 25th chapter of Matthew is only the culmination of what is found everywhere in the Gospels. These go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. There is absolutely nothing peculiar about this passage amid the sayings of Jesus. If there ever was a religious teacher who could not be appealed to in support of a religion of this world, if there ever was a teacher who viewed the world under the aspect of eternity, it is Jesus of Nazareth. These passages, and a great mass of other passages like them, are embedded everywhere in the gospel tradition. So far as I know, even the most radical criticism has not tried to remove this element in Jesus' teaching. But it is not merely the amount of Jesus' teaching about the future life which is impressive. 
What is even more impressive is the character of it. It does not appear as an excrescence in the Gospels, as something which might be removed and yet leave the rest of the teaching intact. If this element were removed, what would be left? Certainly not the Gospel itself. Certainly not the good news of Jesus' saving work, for that is concerned with these high issues of eternal life and death. But not even the ethical teaching of Jesus would be left. There can be no greater mistake than to suppose that Jesus ever separated theology from ethics, or that if you remove his theology, his beliefs about God and judgment, future woe for the wicked and future blessedness for the good, you could leave his ethical teaching intact. But on the contrary, the stupendous earnestness of Jesus' ethics is rooted in the constant thought of the judgment seat of God. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you to enter into life having one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into the Gehenna of fire. These words are characteristic of all Jesus' teaching. The stupendous earnestness of his commands is intimately concerned with the alternative of eternal weal or woe. That alternative is used by Jesus to rouse men to fear. And fear not they who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke records a similar saying of Jesus. And I say to you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you of whom you will fear. Fear him, which after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. There are those who tell us that fear should be banished from religion. We ought, it is said, no more to hold before men's eyes the fear of hell. Fear, it is said, is an ignoble thing. Those who speak in this way certainly have no right to appeal to Jesus, for Jesus certainly did employ, and insistently, the motive of fear. If you eschew altogether that motive in religion you are in striking contradiction to Jesus. Here, as at many other points, a choice must be made between the real Jesus and much that falsely bears his name today. But which is right? Is Jesus right? Or are those right who put out of their minds the fear of hell? Is fear altogether an ignoble thing? Is man necessarily degraded by being afraid? I think, my friends, that it depends altogether upon that of which one is afraid. The words of our text, with a solemn inculcation of fear, are also a ringing denunciation of fear. The fear him is balanced by fear not. The fear of God is here made a way of overcoming the fear of man. And the heroic centuries of Christian history have provided abundant testimony to its efficaciousness. With the fear of God before their eyes, the heroes of the faith have boldly stood before kings and governors and said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. It is certainly an ignoble thing to be afraid of bonds and death at the hands of men. It is certainly an ignoble thing to fear those who use power to suppress the right. Even the fear of God might be degrading, It all depends upon what manner of being you hold God to be. If you think that God is altogether such as one as yourself, 
your fear of him will be a degrading thing. If you think of him as a capricious tyrant, envious of the creatures he has made, you will never rise above the groveling fears of Caliban. But it is very different when you stand in the presence of the source of all the moral order of the universe. It is very different when God comes walking in the garden and you are without excuse. It is very different when you think of that dread day when puny deceptions will fall off and you stand defenseless before the righteous judgment throne. It is very different when not the sins of other people, but your own sins are being judged. Can we really, my friends, come before the judgment seat of God and stand fearlessly upon our rights? Can we really repeat with Henley the well-known words? Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Or this, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Is this the way to overcome fear? Surely not. We can repeat such words only by the disguised cowardice of ignoring facts. As a matter of fact, our soul is not unconquerable. We are not masters of our fate or captains of our soul. Many a man has contemplated some foul deed at first with horror and said, Am I a dog that I should do this thing? And then has come the easy descent into the pit, the gradual weakening of the moral fiber, so that what seemed horrible yesterday seems excusable today, until at last, at some sad hour, with the memory of one's horror of sin still in the mind, a man awakes to the realization that he is already wallowing in the mire. Such is the dreadful hardening that comes from sin. Even in this life, we are not masters of our fate. We are of ourselves certainly not captains of our bodies, and we are of ourselves, I fear, not even captains of our souls. It is pitiable cowardice to try to overcome fear by ignoring facts. We do not become masters of our fate by saying that we are. And such blatancy of pride, futile as it is, is not even noble in its futility. It would be noble to rebel against a capricious tyrant, but it is not noble to rebel against the moral law of God. Are we then forever subject to fear? Is there nothing for us sinners but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation? Jesus came to tell us no. He came to deliver us from fear. He did not do so by concealing facts. He painted no false picture of a complacent God who should make a compact with sin. He encouraged no flattering illusions about the power of man. Jesus did not leave the realm of divine justice as it was and establish in opposition to it a realm of love. But he introduced unity into the world by his redeeming work. He died not to abolish, but to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. In the days of his flesh, he pointed forward to that act. He invited the confidence of man by the promises of what was to come. In our days, we look back to what has already been done. Our joy is in salvation already attained. Our boasting is in the cross. Even the Christian must fear God. 
but it is another kind of fear. It is a fear rather of what might have been than of what is. It is a fear of what would have come were we not in Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. But if it be our love which casts out fear, our love is only a response to the loving act of God. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is the culmination and the transformation of fear. Whosoever therefore will confess me before men, says Jesus, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. There's this great part in the sermon where he says, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And it doesn't really sound that different than a lot of the other things Jesus says, but it is different if you compare it to really any other teacher, preacher, famous philosopher, anything else. Like most people, they're telling you, here's how you can get what you want right now. Here's how you can live a good life. Here's how you can be seen as moral. All these things are about right now. But Jesus, he is about eternity. He is about forever. He is about heaven and he's about hell. And that is who Jesus is is and that's what he's worried about he's worried about your soul now yes he's also worried about your soul for all of eternity more so than any other uh, person that walked on earth and all the other teachers do not get into that aspect of how your eternity is going to spend like jesus does i love that machin highlights that that's really what makes jesus christ different and i also think too that when you pair that with the fight that he's having over missions that's the importance of missions there are people out there who've never had the chance to hear the gospel and that's why we have to go we have to support people who go and we have to be about doing missions in a way that honors god because their souls are out there and they need that chance to hear the gospel because eternity, not just how they live right now, but eternity is on the line. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Kenneth Chipchase. Thanks so much, Kenneth, for helping out with this episode. If you like today's episode, please visit our website at revivedthoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we always appreciate when you tell others about what we're doing. Shoot it in a text, a message, a friend. Just say, hey, have you heard Revive Thoughts? Those are great ways to tell others. If you wanted to go a step further and support the show financially, there are things Joel and I would like to do. We do lots of planning in the background and we say, we'll do this, this, and this once we get a few dollars put away to do it. We can do this with the help of some support from Patreon. Go to patreon.com. We have really great benefits. Um, you will get the Revive Thoughts bookmark, which we are we are seeing the printing presses come out. They look great. Um, and you will get a, a little note from Joel and I on the back of that. That's for you personal. No one else is going to know what's on there unless you tell them. We also will give you access to special history episodes that we are making right now. We are cooking up one on the Salem Witch Trials that we cannot wait for you guys to see. It's going to be very different, very uh, really in-depth in the history side of it. And we know some of you have told us that you enjoy that portion. If you like that portion of the show, it's going to be a lot of that. And uh, there'll be other goodies as we continue cooking them up and creating them for you. And we can do more of that when you guys sign up for Patreon. $3 gets you access to pretty much all of that. And there's a $20 option if you just really love us. Thank you so much. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.